1893, the World's Columbian Exposition, commonly known as the World's Fair, brought millions of visitors to the city of Chicago. Men and women alike were excited to experience the exhibits and rides, but some of them would never return home. Today, I'll tell you about H.H. Holmes, a career criminal who, under a variety of aliases, left a path of deception and death in his travels. His murder castle, which he constructed just a few miles west of the fairgrounds, became the site of countless ghastly murders and disappearances. I'm Laura. I'm here with my two best friends, Colby and Marina, and this is Grim. first question is every isn't every castle a murder castle <laughs> yeah yeah this one is very murdery though okay i feel like every castle that i would say i'd be like mm, somebody definitely got murdered or tortured in there i would also argue about the castle part i think that it just sounds great to say murder castle this is not just to set your expectations it is not a giant castle it just is a building that looks castle like and it was i'm sure just great to say murder castle wow so. you really you really brought me up to bring me back yeah. down pretty quickly <laughs> i mean fortunately for you i I was going to say you had me at murder, not murder yes. castle. So true, true. Uh, well, I will disappoint you, Colby, because this is very solved. Damn it. So yes, after last week's episode, uh, this seems like a good one to tell. Not only is it solved, it's also a century and a half ago. So that kind of helps. So we're good. Yep. We, we're, we're covered. We're not under any threat of bodily harm from no. this individual. No. No. Okay. No. Well, not, not unless some supernatural shit's going to happen here. Well, hold that thought, actually. Oh, oh no. no. At, the, at the very end. It's just a little blurb. Just, but, okay. Yeah. Okay. I am really excited to tell you about this case, though, because it was interesting research. Because usually when I research, I'm researching specifically just about the circumstances of the case. But this was cool because I was learning. It was like a history lesson for three straight days. Um, I have tried really hard not to put every piece of history in this. Um, like when electricity was invented. Oh, this is, and the all case. That, yeah. this is the case that you were texting us about. Yeah, the yeah. history of electricity. I tried to keep it all relevant, although that is okay. relevant, but that's not in here. Okay. Um, I did do my best to compile comprehensive retelling. My arms make really weird noises on this side. I think it's because it's bumping and the yeah. mic is moving a little it's bit. It's because my... Oh, maybe take your watch off. It's not my watch. No, it's, oh, it's her my bones. arms. Yeah. It's her bones. Okay. Maybe take your bones out. Is that doable? <laughs> Quiet um, down those bones. Yes. They're so noisy. Freaky bones. <laughs> Loud bones. Okay. I've done my best to compile a comprehensive retelling, but I do want to note that Holmes was a compulsive liar. So it's actually very difficult to figure out exactly where the truth is in a lot of this. Mm -hmm. I read a book on him. I read his own memoir, a bunch of blogs that did way more research than I even did. But at the end of the day, some of the truth will never be known. So keep that in mind. Okay. Our story today centers around a man who is best known as H.H. Holmes, but went by many aliases. He was born as Herman Webster Mudgett. So I, too, would change my name. H.H. Holmes is way better. Yeah. Yes. Also, when you say aliases, I want it to be alii. And I know it's not. Uh, I always want words that end like that to I be alii. Yeah. Like, I did you know that. octopi is correct? But so is octopuses. <laughs> <laughs> is cactuses? Cac 
cacti. It's definitely well, I know cacti, it's cacti, but yeah. cactuses might also be correct. But oh. I definitely know that octopuses and octopi can go both ways. We digress very early, but yeah. I just I just want to okay. give you that little lesson. All right, appreciate it. Because I always say alii. But it's wrong. It's I know. Very it's, definitely, wrong. Yeah. it's definitely wrong, but I always okay, go ahead and say it. Grim fact. Proceed. Okay. <laughs> so Herman was born on May 16th, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. His parents, Levi and Theodate, which I had to check a billion times because I thought it was typos, but that is apparently it was a common name at the time. Okay. Like theodate that that was and i even i even googled how to pronounce it because then i thought maybe there was a fancy way to i was gonna say are you sure it's not teodate (laughs) no theodate theodate wow yeah uh anyway levi and that's the female name that that is the mother levi or theodate (laughs) theodate i know wait i can't i can't let's hope that one doesn't come back around no it's just one time we're gonna say theodate theodate (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean like you know how older names come back oh, and like oh, come back oh, into- God, yeah, no, no never. <laughs> anyway, Levi and Theodate already had two children, Ellen, don't worry, these are all normal names. Ellen, who was 9 years older than Herman, Arthur, who was 4 years older, um and as was consistent with the times, the Mudgets continued to grow after Herman, so they had another boy, Henry, 3 years later and a girl, Mary, 7 years after that, bringing the total to 5 children spanning almost 20 years. Oh wow. Yeah, it's a okay. long time. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the family was well respected in the small town, and from my research, I believe Levi, uh, again, the father was a postmaster, and Theodate stayed at home. I think that's the last time I say that. So, get your giggles out. Thank you. Herman was bu- bullied in school, and in his memoir, he tells of a story that seemed to shape the path of his life. When he was just five years old, he would walk to school past the town's doctor's office. One day, some other kids from school grabbed him and dragged him into the office to make him look at one of the skeletons the doctor had in his office. And these were real skeletons. That was what you did at the time. At this age, and probably any age, it was terrifying until he managed to get past his fears and it really bolstered his curiosity. He says this is what began his love for medicine. Okay. So those bullies created a psychopath, basically. Pretty much. They like broke him at an early age. Yes. Okay. When he reached high school age, he attended Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, which I was a little shocked to read because I grew up 10 minutes from that school. And I went oh. to regular Exeter High School, and we all talked about the fancy school that was Phillips Exeter <laughs> High School. It is, it's an extremely great school. See, that's why I didn't go there, because my adjective was great. Um, <laughs> do, but, do they have a plaque dedicated to H.H. Holmes in that school? I am actually interested if they mention that. I'm sure they mention it in their history in some way, but because he's to. well known, but not in a good way. Yeah. Infamous. Infamous, yes. He graduated from Phillips Exeter at just 16. I don't know that that's an indication of him being super smart. I think it was probably, remember, this was the 1800s, late 1800s. So at that time, he took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and then Alton, which is also in New Hampshire. And that's where he met his first wife, Clara Lovering, which I thought is that's a nice name, Lovering. Yeah. Uh, They eloped on July 4th, 1878. The next year, he left to attend the University of Vermont, Burlington, where he studied medicine. He traveled back and forth to visit his wife, and they had a son, Robert, on February 3rd, 1880. Not satisfied with the size of the school, he transferred to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, which at the time was the number one medical school in the country. Okay, so he was no dummy. No, I think he was pretty smart and talented. 
He enrolled in their Department of Medicine in 1882, and he took his family with him, but then they soon moved back to New Hampshire. There were reports that he was violent, but I kind of only read that one place, but they did move back. He didn't seem to mind, though. In fact, he basically seemed to just forget about them, so much so he doesn't even mention his son in his memoir. That's a bit odd. Yeah. A little, yeah. little weird. Yeah. You you might piece together why. Um, he has a lot of activity after this, so this was just, just a blip in his life. Okay. One summer between classes, he took a job traveling and selling books. He says that this was his first real crime. He kept the proceeds of the books that he sold. And his travels took him all over, including Chicago, and that is the city he fell in love with. So he was determined to move there as soon as possible. He was set to graduate in 1884, a milestone that almost didn't happen when a widowed hairdresser accused him of making a false promise of marriage to her. I tried so hard to research why that happened and why you could possibly not graduate because of this, but I'm chalking it up to it was the 1800s and I just don't know. I was going to say, oh, the 1800s. It probably like violated a school rule to like threaten the virtue of a woman and not marry her or something. Something something crazy. It probably is. Yeah. Uh, Alas, he did graduate, ideally wanting to start his own medical practice, but finding it difficult. So he took a job in Portland, Maine as a traveling salesman for plant nursery stock. I Googled this too. You see the rabbit holes I went down. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't, the best I could figure is that it was just success and like buying stock in the business because I could find stock, literal stock certificates online for plants from, from like the 1800s. Yeah. But like for, he bought stock for the the nursery. I wonder if it's for the the building Um, or like the business. I'm guessing. And I was thinking that they were buying stock, like large quantities of, um, bedding, oh. bedding plants. That's still possible. All of this is possible because I did find stock certificates, but that also makes a lot of sense to me. And I just don't know. I this is why it took me so long to research this case because I had I was looking up widowed hairdressers. I'm looking up plant nursery <laughs> stock. Yeah, you would need to find this information in like old yellowed books in the state library. Like I don't yeah. think there's information about that um, on the interwebs. Yeah. So Gremlins, if you have any idea and want to let us know, <laughs> please write us in. Pla- what was it? Plant nursery stock. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a historian or somebody that knows a historian that's listening to us. That would be Please great. let us know. Shoot us an email. Yeah. yeah. I like to look that stuff up so I can fill the fill in the details. But Listen and learn. Yeah. So anyway, traveling for this job took him to Moore's Forks, New York. Say that <laughs> 10 times fast. Yeah, really. I was just going to say that. Where, again, 10 times, um, where he landed a job as a principal at a school. He stayed there for a year until he was finally able to open up his own medical practice in 1885. But even with his own practice, he was having difficulty making ends meet. He thought of a scheme that he and a friend had come up with during college. You see, in the late 1800s, cadavers were in high demand since medicine was more of a focus and that was how doctors learned. As a result, it was not uncommon for corpses to go missing, whether immediately after death or even via grave robbing. Herman and his college friend, Robert Leacock. Okay. Oh, I thought you were going to laugh at that one a lot more. I was trying to hold it in. Okay. <laughs> at least it's not Theo Dately cock. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Robert. Okay. Had discussed how easy it would be to use a cadaver for the purposes of collecting life insurance. 
Their plan was to find someone who was sufficiently well-off and exposed to dangers extreme enough to warrant high life insurance. The person would then fake their death, and the group would split the proceeds. Robert and Herman set off to gather their, quote, material, and that is how Herman refers to corpses. However, he alleges that in his travels, he read many newspaper articles about how skilled the insurance companies were at detecting fraud and decided it wasn't worth the risk. Additionally, Robert met an untimely death. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's suspicious. Also, I'm sorry, in the 1800s, insurance companies were skilled at detecting fraud? It was actually very common. Wow. That's surprising to fraud was common. Yeah. I feel like you could get away with everything in the 1800s because there was no technology. Yeah, you can get away with murder, but not insurance fraud. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) So though, speaking of, though no charges were held against Herman for Robert's death, he later admitted that he did actually kill his friend with an overdose of an opioid in order to take the insurance payout. This has actually never been confirmed, though, so we come back to to his lying. According to Herman's confession, it would have been around 1886 or 87, but official records put Robert's death at 1889, so it doesn't line up. So he really did him dirty, so they plotted together (laughs) to to get the insurance proceeds on someone else, and the guy was like, no, that's not going to work out for me. He's like, bye, I'm going to take your (laughs) insurance proceeds. Yep. Wow, he did him dirty. Yep. And so then he went to Philadelphia, where he took a job as a keeper in the Norristown Asylum. But he was so disturbed by working with insane people that he quit only a few days later. And I did laugh at a blogger who was like, how was he? He was so disturbed by insane people, right. yet he committed murder, allegedly. Yeah, like this guy's a certified monster from what you've said, but he was disturbed by the yes. people that were in the asylum. Yep, yep. So he left that job and took a dif- different job working at a pharmacy. While he was working there, a young boy died after he took medicine prescri- prescribed by Herman. Though he admits no fault, he left town immediately for Chicago. Mm, Because that's what innocent people do. Mm -hmm. So Herman arrived in Chicago in 1886 with the intention of opening his own medical practice. In order to do so in Illinois, he had to take an exam and chose to do so under the name Henry Howard Holmes or H.H. Holmes. And I'll refer to him from now on as Holmes. In his first travels to Chicago, he had come across a pharmacy owned by Dr. E.S. Holton. Holton was very ill with cancer and looking to sell his pharmacy to help his soon-to-be widow. Holmes bought the pharmacy, and Mrs. Holton continued to live in the apartment above it. The pharmacy soon began to see an increase in female patrons. Mm -hmm. This was said to be because of the store's new owner, who was an incredibly charming, charismatic, handsome man with piercing blue eyes. A very long way from his awkward, bullied schoolboy persona, Holmes was now a ladies' man. Oh, was he handsome? For the 1800s? <laughs> okay. okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And he, he had to qualify it. But... He definitely was a charmer. He could talk his way out of anything. Okay. Did he have dark hair and blue eyes? Because that's, yes. that's like a recipe for people yes. to love you. Yes. But smooth talker. And I do think he was pretty smart. So I think he was definitely able yes. to talk his way through anything. And he could do that not just with women, but also kind of talk his way out of things with men. But we'll get to that. Holton's Pharmacy was well-known in Englewood, which is the suburb south of Chicago where Holmes established himself. Word soon got around, though, that no one had seen the widow, Mrs. Holton, in a while since her husband had died. When questioned, Holmes said she was visiting family in California. In reality, Colby's shaking her head and she is correct. In reality, it turned out that Holmes had not actually bought the store outright. He had given a down payment and then failed to pay on his debt. Mrs. Holton, of course, had called him on it, and all signs point to him having killed her. 
Mm-hmm. He explained her absence by saying that she never returned from California because she had decided to move there. And I even read some accounts that Dr. Holton didn't die from cancer, that Holmes had killed him too. Now, Holmes murdering Mrs. Holton is generally accepted in most tales of him. But I mentioned in the opening that this was a difficult case to research since it's so far back and Holmes lied so much. And this is why I love doing research for Grimm. A blogger from Chicago named Adam Seltzer, who had done an unbelievable amount of research on Holmes, found that none of that was true. Dr. E.S. Holton was actually Dr. Elizabeth Sanders Holton. Interestingly, she too attended the University of Michigan around the same time as Holmes, although there's no proof they knew each other. Elizabeth married a William Holton, and they had two girls, Abby in 1883 and Francis in 1887, which is about when Holmes would have arrived. And records definitively show that the entire Holton family lived long past when Holmes was finally arrested, which is a spoiler, but I think you figured that out. Oh, so people just have sort of made up things about him to make him even more infamous than he was. There is a lot of that. Uh, We'll talk uh, talk a little bit about that at the end, but there's a lot of that. That's why it's just so Mm. fascinating. And this guy went through, I mean, absurd records. Like you're joking about going to the library, reading the old crusty books. I think he actually did that. Mm. So what was greater, the man or the myth? Uh, It's hard to say. I was going to say the myth because it is crazy, but a lot of it is very true and crazy. (laughs) Now that Holmes owned the pharmacy, however he got it, he was doing well. In 1886, maybe out of boredom, he thought of a woman that he had met when he was traveling in Minneapolis named Murda Z. Belknap. He went into the city on business, quote, and began writing letters to court her, and then he would travel back and forth to Minnesota, you know, courting her. He eventually proposed, and they married on January 28th, 1887. And you may be thinking to yourself, isn't he already married? Yeah. Yeah. That didn't matter. Didn't phase him. Nope. Was not phased. Okay. Into bigamy? Yep. Quite a bit. Okay. 1800s, man. Yep. Two weeks after marrying Murda, he did file for divorce from Clara on the grounds of infidelity. Ironic. Okay. okay. <laughs> but he, after submitting that, he never followed up on it. So the court dismissed it. So he remained legally married to her. Okay. Holmes and Murda moved into the now vacant apartment above the pharmacy and Murda became pregnant. Murda is a really hard name to say. That's what I was thinking. I keep thinking murderic. That's yeah. what's going through my head every time <laughs> yeah. you say it. Like Ja Rule style. <laughs> Murda said Holmes was a great husband, a gentle soul, but she was jealous of his connection to women in the store. Mm. So when her parents moved from Minnesota to Illinois in 1888, she moved in with them, and that's where she had their daughter, Lucy, on July 4th, 1889. Holmes visited the family frequently, but was mostly left to his own devices, and his new focus was the lot across the street from the pharmacy where he wanted to construct his own building. So Holmes used an alias, H.S. Campbell, to finally purchase the lot. His plan was for the first floor to have a bunch of retail shops, including a new pharmacy, and the second floor would have apartments to rent out. Do we know why he used an alias? Yes. Uh, When he was buying anything, he liked to use aliases because he liked to buy things on credit and not pay for them. And it was much easier to point to the mysterious H.S. Campbell. (laughs) I don't know where he is. Yeah, he's a a deadbeat, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yep. That's great. Um, and he also had an ulterior motive for this uh, for this new building. He was building things in secret, like a chute that would go from the second floor to the basement, a vault that was airtight in his office, attached to his office, and gas jets 
in the vault as well as some of the apartments that he, of course, could control. Uh-huh. This is like Sweeney Todd shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, he built a big basement with hidden chambers of and course. even a sub-basement. So a murder building. Yeah, a murder mm-hmm. castle. You might is this some the castle? Say. Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's why I say, I, and we'll post pictures, but it, it was castle-like in that it had the turret things. Okay. But that's basically it. It was only ultimately three stories. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's a liquor store uh, somewhere around here that also has like that turret and um, that does not a castle make. <laughs> <laughs> this was a castle that the other castles picked on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so he managed to build this because you may be wondering, like, how did nobody yeah. think, hey, that that looks like a murder castle. Um, <laughs> but he managed to build it without raising suspicion because he kept hiring and firing construction <laughs> construction workers. So no one had the full picture. They just thought he was really eccentric, which he was, yeah. but also homicidal. Um, he was looking for some additional help, though, that he knew he could trust. So uh, he would test random workers to see if he could trust them. For example, he told one bricklayer to drop a brick on his brother-in-law's head, and he'd pay him $50. The guy declined and quit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fair. <laughs> but Holmes did find three reliable men. Charles Chapel, a machinist. Patrick Quinlan, who became the caretaker at the building. And Benjamin Pitzel, a carpenter who was also a chronic alcoholic. The building was mostly completed in May of 1890. On the second floor, it had six corridors with 35 rooms and 51 doors. Oh, damn. And I'm telling you the number of doors because this was a maze. And I'm going to see if the picture is good enough quality because there is actually an architectural drawing of the layout of the floor. And it it is very bizarre. Um, It was not your typical just one, one corridor in the room. So a murder castle, indeed. All right. Um, the first floor had space for five retail stores, and after moving into the completed building, Holmes sold the drugstore that he had been running across the street and opened another one in his building. It was really a dickish move, though, because the person he sold the pharmacy to, he told him, absolutely not, there's going to be no competition, I'm not going to, I'm definitely not going to open a pharmacy. And he did. He stinks. Yeah. yeah. I'm definitely yeah. not going to take all of your customers over <laughs> exactly. to my new pharmacy exactly. across the street. That's not me. So I mentioned before, he paid for much of the furnishings on credit, but again, under his false name, a false name is a really great way to deter questioning creditors. When the creditors would come, he would charm them. What a time to be alive. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Before credit cards. Right. <laughs> I mean, you died when you were like 40. So there was yeah. that. But at yep. least you got to really live during yeah. those years. And by really live, you mean swindle lots of people. <laughs> Absolutely. I do use the word swindle in here. Right. It, is it feels appropriate. time appropriate. Yeah. Are you going to twist your mustache? Well, you <laughs> mine is not quite long enough to twist, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. So it, the creditors would come and ask for money and he would point them to mysterious people. And then if they got really he would he would try to charm them and sweet talk them, which actually worked a lot of the time. And he would only pay if it seemed like they were going to go to the police. Oh, my God. And, like, nobody had IDs, right? Yeah. So you're just, like, yeah. you're just whoever you yep. say you are. Uh, exactly. Oh, my exactly. gosh. That's and, wild. again, he's well-spoken. He's put together. He apparently runs this building and seems successful. So And he has a medical her. degree. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So he seems intelligent. Exactly. Shortly after Holmes had completed the building, it was announced that Chicago had been selected as the location for the World's Columbian Exposition, as I said in the intro, also known as the World's Fair. The fair would take place in 1893, just a few miles east of Holmes's building. So he wanted to make his apartment building into a hotel for fairgoers. Smart. 
He had to make some modifications. He built a third floor with another 36 rooms and seemingly unrelated built a giant incinerator in the basement. Just that's what you do. You add more rooms. You need an incinerator. Nice to have. Yeah. Burn more garbage. (laughs) Yeah. Now the people working with him, like the groundskeeper where they were like, Hey, you know, what do you use this? Like shoot into the gas chamber basement for? And like, why do we have an incinerator? Or were they just like, this whole design makes sense in my heart. So he actually tried to design the incinerator himself to avoid questioning. Uh, and eventually it like wasn't getting hot enough and uh, for whatever reason uh, that he needed it for. And so he called like a furnace maker to come in and the furnace maker was like, that is a very large body shaped furnace. <laughs> um, and But he didn't inquire any further because, oh, the other thing, sorry, these are all out of my brain and not in my written notes. But he also implied that part of the building was for a glass blowing company and okay. that was part of the reason but you would not have needed a kiln that big questions still arose but not enough to alert anyone um you guys watch how i met your mother right of course Absolutely. because i'm thinking when they asked marshall to design that thing or ted they asked ted to design that thing and he was like i need a basement and it needs to be made up with tiles that are easily washable and it needs to be <laughs> soundproof yeah. with chains from the wall and they were like that is a murder room. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no, no, the guy seems really trustworthy. He's like, no, guys, it's a, it's a murder, murder room. room. Yeah. That is, yes. That's yes. exactly the situation. Here. Yes. Yes. So by November 1890, uh, about a half a year after the building was completed, Holmes's businesses were booming, which is kind of easy to say if you keep all your revenue because you never pay for anything. <laughs> Uh, But he hired a man named Ned Connors to run the pharmacy, and Ned moved into one of the apartments with his wife, Julia, and their young daughter, Pearl. Under the guise of helping him establish himself, Holmes arranged to have Ned purchase the pharmacy from him. He didn't happen to mention all the outstanding debts, and he later said he thought Ned should have known what he was getting into. Mm -hmm. Well, Ned was busy manning the pharmacy and holding off creditors, because now, of course, they're all coming to him. Mm -hmm. Holmes took advantage and began an affair with Julia. His new object of affection went unnoticed by his actual wife, Murda, because he had been visiting her at her parents' house less and less and just wasn't around, but still married to her. Suspecting this affair, and by that I mean I think they flaunted it in front of him, Ned decided to forfeit his share of the pharmacy and move out. He eventually divorced Julia, and he did lose his request for custody of Pearl. Prior to the divorce, Holmes had told Julia he would marry her, as was his style, Holmes apparently felt no need to divorce Murda to do it. Mm -hmm. But once Ned and Julia's divorce was finalized, Holmes had no interest in marrying Julia. Because she's available. Uh Uh-huh. However, in November 1891, Julia says she's pregnant. He says he doesn't want a child. So if she will let him give her an abortion, and he is a doctor after all, although not at all experienced in giving abortions, he'll marry her. So she agreed. That's fucked. And it was planned for Christmas Eve. Oh, what a special miracle of life. What a gift. (laughs) Right? Wow. So he told Julia that he would use chloroform to put her under. That was his his anesthesia of Mm -hmm. choice, anesthetic of choice, Uh, which he did. And then he suffocated her. I was going to ask, like, there was no No, way she was making out of this alive. And sadly, he killed Pearl. Um, Not exactly clear what way i think it was the same way i think he suffocated her some things i read were poison i'm, I'm not clear and i'm also not positive how old she was i saw some reports that said she was 12 but for some reason i imagined she was a lot younger i don't know very sad though dick move definitely 
Okay, so moving on. Benjamin, the carpenter that worked for Holmes, went to a doctor who treated patients for alcoholism in a small town 80 miles southwest of Chicago. While there, he met a woman named Emmeline Sigrand, who worked as a stenographer, which was someone who transcribed what people were saying, typically in shorthand, so as to write as fast as people talked. Emmeline was young and beautiful, and when Benjamin returned to Englewood, he told Holmes about her. Holmes immediately wrote to her and offered her twice her current salary for her to come work for him, which, of course, she did. Better pay and living in the bustling metropolis of Chicago would be appealing to anyone. She moved to Englewood in May 1892. Having murdered his most recent mistress, Holmes began an affair with Emmeline. At first, she lived in a boarding house up the street, but Holmes soon invited her to live with him in his building. Her family eventually came to visit from Indiana, and Holmes asked her to marry him. She was deeply in love, because remember, Holmes is successful, charming, and handsome, and she is not aware that he is also a murderer. Or married two other times. (laughs) (laughs) Minor, Minor detail. In December of the same year, she planned a trip back to Indiana to visit with her family for the holidays. However, she would never make it there. Mm-hmm. According to Holmes, Emmeline had changed her mind and decided to marry a man named Robert Phelps. Her family, as well as others in the building who knew her, received a typewritten wedding announcement, but no further communication. They were concerned and thought that maybe she had died while traveling with her new husband in Europe and her husband didn't know how to contact them. And certainly no one suspected Holmes because he was just as perplexed as them. And at the time, they didn't really think it was murder. It just was very confusing. They had received the invitations. And I also read that the the addresses were put on with her handwriting. But people said that maybe some of the, some of the things I read said maybe he had her um, write them out for something else and then use them for this. So hmm. we... We think that things did not go well for Emmeline. Sounds like they probably didn't. I'm surprised that he would go to such lengths to cover his tracks when there's, like, nothing in the 1800s to prove. Otherwise, he could just be like, she ran off. Yeah, I don't know why he... That's a good point, but... I mean, I guess you'd still be suspicious of someone if all these people go missing, so... But, I mean, yeah, like, there's no way to know... You can't even call people. Right, right. (laughs) Right. Right. So once again, without a mistress, Holmes lucked out. A woman named Minnie R. Williams had met Holmes in Boston years earlier, and now in 1893, she had moved to Chicago. Minnie and her younger sister, Anna, were born originally in Mississippi and were orphaned at a young age. So her uncle, uh, Minnie's uncle, became her legal guardian and sent her to school in Boston. Sadly, he too died young, I guess, again, as happens in the 1800s, but left her nearly $100,000. In that time money, which is like $3 million now. Damn. Minnie fell in love with Holmes when they originally met in Boston. And although he got tired of all the travel and lost touch, she never forgot him. The two reconnected in Chicago and Holmes hired her as a stenographer. She finally moved into one of the apartments and eventually he asked her to marry him. Is this sounding familiar by it's any like chance? It's like a pattern. Yeah. What did he need a stenographer for as a pharmacist? I Well, he ran all these buildings. He was like, I don't know, he was a business owner. He Because he managed the whole building and there were other retail spaces in the first floor. 
And he needed a stenographer for all his business? For his letters. Okay. That's how you conduct a business. Probably responding to all the creditors, if I were guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Yep. Okay. So Holmes arranged the wedding himself, very small and intimate, but it was actually never officially recorded. Convenient, because he was still legally married to both Clara, the first wife from New Hampshire, and Murda, and Minnie had no idea. In fact, Minnie was pretty clueless. She had already signed over most of her estate in the form of land in Texas to a man named Alexander Bond at Holmes's urging. But that was actually an alias of Holmes. I was going to say, that's him, isn't it? <laughs> Bond. Yep. Alexander Bond. <laughs> yeah, this is one of his many, many names. This guy's a real gentleman. Yeah. Creative. Very we'll creative. So 1893 was an exciting year for reasons beyond Holmes and Minnie's marriage. It was the start of the World's Fair. So I'll give a little bit of history around the World's Fair because I did find it really interesting, Marina. Um, But if you want the full story, I highly recommend reading Eric Larson's book, The Devil in the White City, which runs parallel H.H. Holmes's history, everything about him, and then also the World's Fair. Because there's actually quite a bit of drama about how Chicago was chosen, how it came to be, all the drama leading up to it. Um, I... exercised self-control and not including every detail of that here but i will tell you a little bit because it was interesting (laughs) it's a it's a sick book title too it is the devil in the white city yeah it's good chicago was known as the white city at that point i don't know why i got that from context clues (laughs) winter yeah i don't know okay if it yeah okay In 1889, France had held a Grand Exposition Universelle to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the storming storming of Bastille, which marked the beginning of the French Revolution. It was simultaneously a way for France to signal to the rest of the world that it was an industrial success. This was when the Eiffel Tower was built. It was built specifically for this event. Now, America, being America, needed to prove the same or that we were even better. It was decided that we would celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus discovering America and host our own World's Fair, or the World's Columbian Exposition, in 1892. This event was groundbreaking. It covered almost 700 acres, like, in the city. Oh, my gosh. Um, And more than 27 million people attended the exposition during the six months it was running. Jeez. Wow. Uh, Attractions at the fair included the original Ferris wheel, which I told my husband about that fact, and he was like, okay. I was like, no, no, it was the original one. So It was I, the Ferris yes, wheel. Yes, and if which, I had to guess, it was a death trap. Um, yes. So it, again, in that book, it it's super crazy. There were so many deaths associated with it. Honestly, I think many events at this time, people got electrocuted yeah. and crushed and things like that. But um, So I thought that was interesting. It was also, <laughs> apparently that's my word this time, uh, the first commercial movie theater. Many modern products that we know today that were introduced for the first time, including Juicy Fruit, oh. um, Cracker Jacks, and PBR, which I thought was fun. Uh, Got to thank them for that. Yep. Wait, like Pabst Blue Ribbon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it had state buildings like we do at the Big E here in the Northeast. And it also had life-size reproductions of Christopher Columbus's three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. To you in the bottom while I'm drinking sangria. <laughs> Thank you. I put that in parentheses, but I was hoping you'd get it. I wasn't sure if that's what you wanted. Yes. Like, I was like 95% sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, of course. Yep. 
So this was also only 20 years after the Great Chicago Fire, which had destroyed 2,000 acres of the city after the infamous cow kicking over the lantern in the O'Leary farm. Naturally. I could, I could, <laughs> have not heard of the infamous. No, I have what? not. Not me. This cow did not make it onto my radar. <laughs> okay. Well, I literally write, I could, I could write a whole case about that, but not today. Okay. <laughs> Maybe apparently, another day. Apparently I'll have to. All right. I do just mention this to emphasize the significance of the fair, both to the strength of America and also the ability of Chicagoans to rebuild. However, the 1890s were also an era of crime. The panic of 1893 happened just before the fair opened to the public. Stock prices had declined, unemployment soared, and people were starving. So although the fair lifted people's spirits, it was easy for nefarious people to get away with things. That's such a great word, nefarious. I love that word. That's a great word. Young people, many of them women, were flocking to Chicago and becoming vulnerable as they began to live on their own. And at the time, Chicago was the second most populous city in the United States. There were a lot of people around. But there was a lot of death in the city. For example, train tracks ran right through the streets at ground level, and people often literally just lost limbs or their lives because they would get hit by trains. There were fires, there was disease, car and horse accidents, and murder. So like I said, you can hide from your creditors, but I mean, you're only going to live to 40, so you gotta, yep. you got to take what you can get. Exactly. And murders were on people's minds because in London, Jack the Ripper had just ended his reign of terror just mm. a couple years before. Mm-hmm. And word was making its way from Massachusetts about the gruesome murders at the hand of a woman named Lizzie Borden. Mm. Lizzie Borden took an axe. Now we'll do We should do that case though, yes. at some point in time. Yep. We should. Yep. Can we also stay at the Lizzie Borden hotel? Uh, we absolutely should. I've spent some lots and lots of time there growing up a couple towns over I've from where been. this happened. And fun fact, the murders occurred on my birthday many, many years away, but it did happen on August I was going to say, wow, you look oh. great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I, uh, I've always felt a special connection to that because of the birthday thing. Yeah. I've never been there. Mm-hmm. We yeah. should go. We'll go. We have a lot of field it's trips. Un, it's we unnerving do. to be in that yeah. house. So people began arriving in the city and to Holmes's hotel. It was decently popular, but not full. And this was because when male visitors inquired, Holmes told them there was no vacancy. He only allowed young women. And Minnie, as you might imagine, was increasingly jealous. Yep. It began to be a nuisance to Holmes, so he rented an apartment for, quote, them on the north side of the city, a.k.a. he just sent her there to get her, her out of his way. And then women started disappearing. A waitress in the hotel, yet another stenographer from out of town, a cashier from up the street, all there one day and gone the next without any word. Were there smoke signals coming from the top <laughs> of the murder castle? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Family and friends of these women reached out, and Holmes was always very helpful, but weirdly to no avail. There were no leads, and police were too busy with the World's Fair to help. Holmes was free to continue his anonymous homicide. He had a variety of approaches. Sometimes he would lure them into the vault in his office. As I said, it was soundproof for the most part, but with more guests coming in, he needed something even more silent. He turned to the gas nozzles he had installed in the rooms and killed women in their sleep. Can you imagine, because I understand it that it wasn't in every single room. Can you imagine just picking the wrong room in a hotel and that's it? Can you imagine waking up dead? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought you were going to say. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, but that's just blissful. True. That's a good way to go out. We've covered a lot of horrible ways to die. You just go to sleep and never wake up. Yeah. And he would do that. So his other way was he had a master key to all the rooms. So he would go in and then smother them with chloroform, which Mm -hmm. is also like relatively 
painless for them, I guess. So for the gas chambers, for him, it really was just like the thrill of the actual kill yes. because he had no involvement in it. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Oh, and what would he do with the bodies, you might ask? Uh, well, he'd send them down his secret chute mm-hmm. from the upper floors to the basement. And then his henchmen would sometimes help strip the body and clean up its skeleton because you could sell that for money. Remember, the doctors are always yep. looking for things, medical schools. So he, he made some money off of them. And I guess in some cases where he knew people well enough, he could actually get insurance policies on them. Although that doesn't quite make as much sense to me how it could, the payout would go to him. Right. God, but, he's got quite the setup here with the yeah. World's Fair. Like yep. he has... Uh, exactly. He has like a pick of the litter uh-huh. and... Like, wow. Carte blanche. Like full reign. Uh-huh. Full pick of the litter. Anybody yep. he wants. Quite Nothing's well, going to happen. And they all traveled. Many of them traveled from out of town. So it's not, you know, they as far as their families or whoever were concerned, yep. they came to Chicago, went to the World's Fair and disappeared. So... Yep. And it would probably take a while to even realize they were missing. Exactly. Wow. Yep. So unaware of these atrocities, Minnie lived contentedly in their uptown <laughs> apartment. She wrote often to her sister, Anna, who now lived in Texas. But even after the marriage, Anna was suspicious of how fast the relationship was moving. She was especially suspicious when Minnie had transferred the property out of her name. So Holmes invited her to Chicago to visit and see the World's Fair. Oh, no. Mm. Anna arrived in the city in mid-June 1893. They toured Chicago and then the fair. They went daily um, for almost two weeks because I guess that's just how long it took because it was such a span and so much to look at. They had such a good time that Holmes invited Anna to stay the summer and she readily agreed. Around the 4th of July, Holmes told Minnie and Anna that he would take them across the country to the coast of Maine and then they would sail to Europe. Holmes then offered to take Anna to the fair while Minnie began preparations for the long trip. They stopped back at the hotel at the end of their tour with Holmes saying he needed to do something in his office. He asked Anna to get something out of the vault. No. No. And she would never come out alive. Why? Had to get her out of the way. (sighs) He then went back to the apartment to get Minnie and bring her to the hotel where he said Anna was waiting for them. And a couple of days later, he told the landlords of the apartment that he no longer needed it. The sisters were never seen again. Mm. Holmes did not admit to this in his memoir. Instead, he says that Minnie and Anna got into a fight and that Minnie hit her with a stool and then Anna (laughs) fell hitting her head and dying. And he says that Minnie was so upset that he sent her away to an institution brought by a Mr. Hatch that doesn't appear to actually exist. How convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's he's got like an excuse or an explanation for everything. And you get this. So I did actually read his memoir and it is because I was curious what his accounts compared to what I was reading said. And you can get the vibe of just his cockiness Mm. and like he's blatantly lying like, oh, I don't know why. Minnie was so upset about it. And like it just it's. He's not a great guy. She only accidentally murdered her sister. I don't know why you'd be so upset about that. She could have just borrowed my incinerator. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Oh, it was very convenient. Yeah. He sort of, he had to kill the other sister, though. Because Definitely. She, she would know that her sister was missing. Definitely. Now. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. So, yet again, Holmes found himself with an empty bed. So he went on the hunt for another woman. And this time met young Georgiana Yoke, who was a 23-year-old saleswoman at a local store. And yet again, without ending his other marriages... He and Georgiana married. As always, he was nearly out of money because although he wasn't paying anyone, he was buying things and spending money as if he made a lot. So he attempted an old favorite. He set fire to the hotel and then tried to put an insurance claim in for the damage. So it was a smallish fire. Um, But the insurance company investigated and Holmes was actually arrested for fraud. But ultimately, they did let him go. 
Unfortunately for him, though he had successfully been dodging the creditors, lawyers, detectives, and others he had deceived for years, his brief arrest resurrected interest, (laughs) and Holmes began to feel that the walls were closing in on him. We all work for insurance companies, so I'm just, I'm laughing, like, leave it to insurance companies to catch this guy in lies where, like, he's just murdering all these people with nobody questioning his behavior, and the insurance company's like, I smell fraud. We're like, you said you had a fire protective device. You didn't have one because your hotel burned. Like, come on. Oh, insurance companies denying payments since 1880. (laughs) So he did manage to sweet talk his way out of, he was literally in an office with police and detectives and creditors, and he managed to sweet talk his way out. And he and his new wife fled to Texas. Oh, man. Yep. He also brought with him his trusty assistant, Benjamin Pitzel. To no one's surprise, he took out an insurance policy on (laughs) Benjamin's life. I hope to Benjamin's surprise. <laughs> when yep. you sign those papers, you're signing your own death yeah. certificate. Yes. Yeah. Well, the two men began scheming to collect an insurance payout by faking Benjamin's death. Mm. Okay. Fake. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. You guys are picking this up. Yeah. Quick. Yep. <laughs> Benjamin wasn't. That's how we are. <laughs> yep. Well, he was busy being a chronic alcoholic. Right. So. Oh, yeah. okay. Actually, that Fine. makes sense. Yeah, he was yeah. busy. Um, while they were working out the details, the three, so Holmes, Benjamin, and Georgiana, were traveling around and just committing fraud. So in St. Louis, Holmes was arrested again for fraud and briefly jailed. He was released, but during his time behind bars, he met Marion Hedgepeth. These names. I don't like I don't these know, names. Known as the Handsome Bandit. Uh, he is another career criminal who agreed to help with this scheme. What was the name? I'm sorry, Marianne? Marion. Uh, oh, Marion. It's yeah. like Marianne. Marion. M-A-R-I-O-N. Okay. Yeah. Hedge, Hedgepeth. What about Theodate Hedgepath? Theodate. I can't do it still. Theo, Theodate. Theodate. Theodate Hedgepath Leacock. Yes. Hey, you're learning, though. I okay. am. Um, in the meantime, Benjamin had gone to Philadelphia and opened a fake patent office to swindle inventors. So greedy as he was, and you predicted this, Holmes did not want to split the future payout with Benjamin. So he followed him to Pennsylvania and killed him. Aside from that slight deviation, he otherwise stuck to the plan. He torched Benjamin's body so it wouldn't be recognizable and left the body in a building so that it would soon be found and the insurance would pay out. But by the time they found the body, it was difficult to identify between the burns and decomposition. Holmes, ever helpful, offered to help identify it. He went with the coroner to the body where he located a distinctive wart on the body's neck. The coroner asked for a member of Benjamin's family to also identify him. So Benjamin's wife, Carrie, was sick back at home. So she sent her second eldest daughter, Alice, who was only 15. They draped the body to only show his teeth, which (laughs) I just, I feel terrible for this girl. But can you imagine being like, is this your father? And it's just. Like, I don't know if that's my dad's teeth, yeah. sir. Like, I, I'm going to need a little bit more yeah. to go with. And, like, I get maybe they were trying not to because it was, you know, he had been burned and all right. this. But how would you possibly know? Okay, d- like dental impressions, but that's no, for, yeah. like, something scientific. Yeah. Nope, not at all. <laughs> not a 15-year-old okay. girl. No, nope. can you? Um, d- unless he had, like, gold diamonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah gold, maybe. Like, distinctive. Diamonds. A grill. <laughs> he had a grill, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Well, somehow she she seemed confident it was her father. <laughs> I know those teeth. Yeah, <laughs> that is the 
most absurd thing yep. I've heard. And oh, it was man. enough. So these insurance companies who were so good at detecting fraud said, that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> we're paying out the All death right. benefit. So Holmes offered to take Alice back home to her mother, but instead took her to a hotel in Indianapolis with the promise that her sister, Nellie, and brother Howard would soon be joining her. Not entirely wrong. It would be a temporary arrangement at her mother's request until she could find them all a suitable home. And then home. And then Holmes went alone to see Carrie in St. Louis. When Holmes arrived at Carrie's house, she was understandably alarmed that Alice was not with him, still believing her husband was alive because she was in on the insurance fraud. Um, She demanded his whereabouts. Holmes assured her that both her husband and daughter were fine. He explained they had to keep up the charade of Pitzel's death so as not to arouse the suspicions of the insurance company. Okay. So Carrie agreed to let Nellie and Howard go with Holmes while she and her other two children visited her parents. Holmes promised in a few short weeks he would meet her in Cincinnati, bringing not only the children, but her husband as well. Now, remember the handsome bandit, Marion Mm -hmm. Hedgepeth? (laughs) Yes. He flipped and talked to the police because Holmes never gave him his percentage of the payout. So he decided to work with the police, let them know about the scheme. And the insurance company was notified, and they soon called in this company called the Pinkertons. And there's like a whole Wikipedia page. It's like a big thing. Oh, yeah, the Pinkertons. Oh, are you being serious? No, I've heard oh. of that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, in, I had in not. In criminal law, there's something called Pinkerton liability. So that's what I'm thinking. Okay, of, it's probably but. all related. I don't know. But an organized <laughs> manhunt began in early October 1894. And in less than six weeks, Holmes was arrested in Boston for insurance fraud and taken back to Philadelphia. He was put on trial for defrauding the insurance company. Holmes knew he was cornered. But not murder, though. No. 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 So, again, it's all about yeah. the insurance companies exactly. being right. defrauded versus yep. him taking all these human yep. lives. Uh, on May 28, 1895, he entered a plea of guilty in, in exchange for a lighter sentence. And he was pleased with this reduced prison term. And he looked forward to being a, a free man in just a few months. But there was still the matter of the three missing children. So Holmes had said that they had traveled to Liverpool in the care of a Ms. Minnie Williams. Hmm. She's been long dead. Mm-hmm. They might be together, but not in the life. Yes, I, not in the realm of the living. Yes. I was going to say, what is the opposite of afterlife? <laughs> That's why I landed on life. The present life. <laughs> yeah. That was yep. good. Good words. I'm good really words. Good. I'm really good at those. Detective Frank Geyer was hired to find the children. When Holmes had been arrested, they collected a trunk with letters that the children had written to their mother and given to Holmes to mail. But of course, he never did because he's a piece of shit. (laughs) Um, Geyer was doing his best to follow where they went based on the letters. Because, of course, Holmes is not admitting that where he went or anything. Um, But in the letters, it would say locations because these poor children were writing to update their mother. But it was difficult because Holmes, of course, would use aliases. (laughs) Alii. Thank you. Uh, however, he was able to match Holmes's writing after going literally from hotel to hotel in city to city uh, and looking in the ledger. And he had talked with the owner of a hotel, confirming that a man matching Holmes's description and three children came through. So he followed him from Cincinnati to Indianapolis to Detroit, where the last letter in the tin box from Alice, the oldest child, was. And it was crazy because so he's moving these children, but also his wife. And they didn't, they weren't aware of one another. So he would like move the children and get a hotel room under one name for them and then also move his wife and get another name. And they somehow didn't, it would be in a hotel up the street or something. 
just feels like a lot to have to remember. Like you're just gonna get yeah. tripped up pretty yeah. easily. You can't have an off day if you're H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> yeah. You are always on. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. Next, they went to Toronto, where mm-hmm. they found a house that Holmes had likely rented under an alias, of course. And in the house, the current tenant let them look around. They looked at a cellar, which was through a trap door in the kitchen. Perfect. Again, 1800s. It was dirt, about 10 feet by 10 feet and only about four feet high. They noticed the dirt was loose and they began to dig at it and a bad smell arose. Mm. And after a little digging, they found a human bone. In the cellar, they discovered the bodies of Alice and Nellie. Mm. Nellie's feet had been amputated. What? She had been club-footed, so likely Holmes had removed them so that they, she wouldn't be identified. Oh. Their mother, Carrie, actually learned of the deaths in the paper because she oh. had been visiting friends, so the telegraph oh, no. didn't reach her. She was then brought to Toronto where she identified the children's bodies. That's devastating. There were no marks of violence on the children, so the coroner actually suspected Holmes had locked them in the giant trunk they were traveling in and gassed them with hose because, you, you know, they have gas lamps, mm-hmm. gassed them with the hose from the lamp. They found a hole in the side of the trunk that matched this description, so it all checked out. What a monster. Howard, the remaining child, was still not found. Mm. Now, the discovery of the girls' bodies caused the police to want to investigate Holmes's hotel, and they found a ton of stuff, and mm. they believed that he had killed dozens of people. In the basement, which was 50 feet by 165 feet, so giant, they found a vat of acid with eight ribs and part of a skull at the bottom. They found mounds of quicklime, which I meant to research, but I'm pretty sure it just cuts down on smell, bad smells. Is that um, right? It, I, I think lime like disintegrates a body. It aids, well. it oh, aids it? in decomposition. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. well, should have done my research. Could have uh, just asked your friends who for some reason know that. <laughs> um, the large kiln, of course, they saw and a dissection table. Lots of surgical tools. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be related to his medical practice. Uh, charred high heels and even more bones. They found 18 ribs from the torso of a child, mm. several vertebrae, a bone from a foot, a shoulder blade, a hip socket, lots of clothing, including a girl's dress and blood-stained overalls. Human hair was clogged in the stovepipe. Yeah, gross. Um, and in the ash in the stove, they found a chain from that a jeweler confirmed to be from a watch that Holmes had given Minnie. Mm. Mm. Finally, Geyer had found, so he's still doing research because he wants to find the missing, final missing child. So he found a house in Indianapolis that Holmes had rented. And in the large wood stove, they found human teeth, a fragment of a jaw, and then organs that Ooh. were so tightly packed that it, they didn't burn. Oh, gosh. Um, and they found clothing that was Howard's as well. And it was enough to confirm that it was his body. Oh, wow. Man. So he was set free. I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like... The basement of horrors. <laughs> yep. So on September 12th, 1895, Holmes was indicted for the murders of Benjamin Pitzel and the three children. While in jail, Holmes wrote his memoir. He had learned, quote unquote, learned um, of the of the deaths of the girls through the newspaper. And when they questioned him, he again said it must have been Minnie. Um, he was focused on trying to get his pu- memoir published. And he did manage to get a deal, and his hope was that this would he would plead his case to the public and change their opinion of him. It did not. The jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced sentenced to death by hanging. What a what a narcissist! Mm. Oh, absolutely. While he was waiting to be hanged, he confessed to murdering twenty seven people. Wow. This was a mix of truth and lies, though. Some of the people he claimed to have killed were alive. 
<laughs> so not true. Unclear exactly how many people he ultimately had killed. There were newspapers at the time that were definitely sensationalized and said upwards of 200. That's not the going rate. Okay. I think the confirmed number are nine, and that was Julia Connor and her daughter Pearl, um, Emmeline Sagrand, Minnie and Anna Williams, and Benjamin Pitzel and the three children. It's likely there's another blog that went through every single one of the 27 he confessed to and like either debunked them or confirmed them. But nine is like the for sure we know okay. that. And then it's kind of gets a little gray. So on May 7th, 1896, he was brought to the gallows. And as the noose was readied, Holmes said, take your time, old man. And then he was hanged. <laughs> so those were his last words. So famous last words, yep. take yep. your time, old man. Yep. <laughs> and he was buried in cement, like 10 feet of cement at his request because he thought someone would steal his body, which is just so ironic. I thought it would. I thought they just did it to make sure he didn't like escape yeah, from the grave. That, I was thinking like, and they like, really want to make sure he's dead. So originally didn't include this, but stuck in the brain is that they actually exhumed his grave. I don't remember what year, but they want. They weren't sure. They thought maybe he had somehow escaped or faked his death, and they confirmed it was actually him in okay. his grave. But so they had to chip away all the concrete. Yes, and and it was like relatively recent. Like this was not like 1902. This was relatively recent, which I thought was a little overkill. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned way earlier that like we were joking about his ghost or whatever isn't going to haunt us, but weird things did happen after he died. Now, I'm the, generally, I'm not into like the supernatural and all this, but um, after he died, Geyer, the te- detective, became very ill. The warden of the prison where Holmes was hanged committed suicide. The jury foreman was electrocuted in a freak accident. The priest who delivered Holmes's last rites was found dead on the church grounds of mysterious causes. And a fire destroyed the office of the district attorney, and only a picture of Holmes was left untouched. Oh, I'm, man. I'm not sure how much I believe that last one. I feel like that might have been a little sensationalized. But what a bizarre set of circumstances. I'm here, yeah. bitches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he has no tombstone at his grave, and he's buried um, at Holy Cross Cemetery, which is a Catholic cemetery in Pennsylvania. Um, and Field as, trip! Yeah. <laughs> and as for the murder castle... Um, on August 19th so of the same year that all this happened, allegedly from arson, the castle had a big fire. No one was arrested for this, um, and the building did survive the fire and was rebuilt and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938 when the city purchased the land, and it's now a post office. Hmm. So uh, that, my friends, is the grave retelling of H.H. Holmes's insidious murders and mysteries. And I would say he definitely had some murders and mysteries. Mm, definitely. I do have one follow-up question. Yes. So his two first wives survived him yes good for them do you think they knew what was going on honestly no because i'm his first wife definitely didn't because he was under a new name right knew everything i'm trying to think if his second wife knew his name yeah she would have so i don't know i was just thinking how crazy it is to have been them because the other wife did not survive just about every other woman who crosses yeah. path, mistress or not did not Although, make it out alive. He wasn't in the swing of it yet. Mm. Georgiana also survived though. She was the latest girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was only because he was arrested. I was going to say she, was she there. probably yeah. would have run out of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he was crazy. I remember I watched, I was interested in this because it, I watched some documentary on it a while back. I didn't realize he was from New Hampshire though. Originally. I only remembered that he was in Chicago. So 
I thought you were going to say that the murder castle is still standing and it was like refurbished as an elementary school or something like absolutely <laughs> no. insane. No. And it's really weird because I went, of course, and looked at it on Google Maps and it's, it's just a post office. It's not, you know, it's not a, there's, I don't know. I don't know what I expect them to put there, but. How haunted is that yeah. post office? Yeah, probably. Very. No mail is making it to any of the <laughs> intended recipients. Yeah. No. It's like the Grinch when he's sor- sorting yes. mail. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. That is H.H. H. Holmes. That was that was a good one yeah was, i like that one it was almost unbelievable but yeah the 1800s right yeah, right like, yep. yeah i just okay win big win for insurance companies go yeah. go pnc insurance companies yep. get exactly. it right exactly yeah that was is this like does this case show up a lot in pop culture do you know and we don't yes in, i don't recall there so there's a million documentaries on it and i think i forgot to look what movies are made but definitely i'm pretty sure there's a ton of books on it and i i think there was a movie in like 2004 um, that came out did he inspire sweeney todd i don't know do you know that movie johnny depp so he yeah i know he's the demon barber of fleet street and they set up a shoot into the basement and they um you know they have an incinerator but in Uh, that movie they take the meat and grind it into meat for their um pies pie yeah their (laughs) their pie shop because they don't they're running out of meat so yeah. it's a little bit different, but it seems it's like, like it could, yeah. it seems like it could it be the inspiration. I think so. Yeah. I was trying to see if I could find anything. I thought it was something very recent that had referenced him or was inspired by him. Possibly. Look up. There's a movie. It's not the How I Met Your Mother episode. <laughs> that was not what I had in mind. No. Let me see if I can find. There is. I know a movie came out. Let me see. I'll pause. Okay, yeah, so Hulu officially orders The Devil in the White City limited series with Keanu Reeves. So I bet that I bet that's the same. Let me see. What timing? Because I just happened to yep. remember it was a name that had two of the same initials and three of the same letters to yeah. start. Oh, I bet that's what it was. Yeah. Because it also, yeah, because it looks like, so again, the book, The Devil in the White City, um, is about both the World's Fair and H.H. H. Holmes. Because again, there's, there's actually so much drama around the World's Fair. I was like, don't include it, Laura. That'll be too much. Um, but I think that's what's included in that. Hmm. And that's Damn. directed by Leonardo DiCaprio and Scorsese. Oh, that'll probably be pretty good. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, there you go. I, I don't know when it's coming out. Maybe it already came out. Hmm. Can't tell. Anyway, check that out. <laughs> <laughs> we won't help you and tell you when, but Hulu. Someday. Yeah. We're not sponsored Maybe. by them, but like, check it Maybe out. Maybe Netflix. I don't know. Check it out. Leo, give me a call. Disney's got enough money. They could throw a few bucks yeah. our way. Like you're too old for him. That is, yeah. Did you know that? He I only did. dates women under 25. I saw somebody who recently got a birthday cake for their 25th birthday and it just said too old for Leo <laughs> instead of an age. That's really good. Oh man. All right. Well, Hey gremlins, I hope you enjoyed this one. I know it was a little bit of a shorter one, but again, I figured you did not need a dissertation on the world's fair. So if you do let me know, um, and in general, follow us on Instagram at grim crime podcast and on Facebook, as I've said in my last episode, just search grim colon, a true crime podcast. And you should be able to find us. We post case photos and other super interesting stuff there. We would love it. If you could rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, we're on Apple podcasts podcasts spotify google podcasts stitcher and amazon music and if you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com listen learn and stay alive until next time gremlins because the future is grim